Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Ricky Arundel. Ricky, welcome. Very pleased to be here, Amy. Oh, it's an absolute delight. I've been waiting to have this conversation for a very long time, and now it has happened. So this is a really exciting conversation because I have met you through the Professional Speaking Association, and I'd heard about you beforehand. I'd been to my one and only talk which in live person before everything went online. And it was a talk at PSA Southeast and Michael Dodd was, Dodd was there and he was talking about you. And I was like, I need to meet this Ricky. And here we are. So we, many, many conversations down the line because you instigated a fabulous lockdown coffee and conversation meeting and it's still going a year later, which is fantastic. So yes, this is, this is our opportunity to explore the world of Ricky. Well, it's a fascinating world. <laughs> well, why don't we start with what is it that you're up to right now? Right now, um, I'm, I'm working hard on a couple of presentations. I'm doing I'm uh, doing a uh, history presentation for the University Hospital Birmingham uh, tomorrow. Um, they've just recently made me one of their uh, LGBT icons. So my picture's all over the place and in Birmingham, apparently. Uh, and tomorrow I'm going to be talking about LGBT history, going back from I'm starting at Greeks and ending up at around about 1970. So, uh, That's people... really interesting. So so why start with the Greeks? What, what was it there? Uh, I, simply because there are a couple of statues around um, of uh, Aphrodites and Hermaphrodites, and these were statues um, where... Yeah, you think, oh, that's a man, because it's got male part. Oh, no, no, breasts. Oh, don't know. So it's those kind of statues you look at and think, oh, that's that's, that's interesting. That's, that's neither male nor female. And I want to try and get people to understand that the whole idea of just male, just female, actually is more of a modern thing than an ancient thing, because in ancient times, it was quite accepted that there were a small proportion of people who were between genders. Uh, and it's just trying to get people to understand that that middle space um, is actually okay. Uh, and I want to try and get the message across to trans people as well, because I think a lot of trans people also feel it has to be one or the other. You're either male or you do a full transition, surgery, the whole bit to become female. And then you've got people on the female side say, oh, you can't come over here because you're not your. And we get this silly them and us battle constantly going on, which is undermining all of humanity. Um, and I've tried to show through the history talk I do. Yeah, there's some of the issues where people have transgressed that boundary and live between those and, and try to get people to understand that, hey, What's wrong with not being male or female? What's wrong with being somewhere between? Which is where I probably find myself now. Um, and I have done the whole transition from one side to the other and and got so far across it and thought, whoa, 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 this is, this is crazy. I can never really cross because I was never on one side anyway. So you, 
uh, and this is what I've started to realise. I've always been in the middle. So I love that description that you use called the middle space. I think it's fantastic because yeah. it, it's and, and being comfortable being in that place as well. Yeah, not easy. We enforce gender stereotypes more rigidly and more ferociously than we do some of our strictest laws. Last year, 300 trans people, mostly trans women across the world, were murdered just brutally. And I don't mean just like shot, shot 15 times, you know, uh, burnt to death, um, beaten to death. Um, it, it's always with a, with an awful level of hatred that these people are just brutally killed for no other reason than that they're not male or female, that they present themselves somewhere in between. and. Um, and I find it quite frightening that it's still happening. Uh, I've got a picture of the Spanish conquistadors doing exactly the same thing 400 years ago, and they're still doing it. And you think, well, why? Why does everybody have such a problem with people being between genders? And we live in fear. Most, most of us have this horrible, horrible fear. I'm, I'm, I first became aware that I was trans, uh, at around about the age of, well, actually, my teacher at school spotted something first. Uh, but this was 1956. I was six years old. Uh, and she didn't understand what it was. She just saw that I didn't seem to get on with kids of my own age. So sent me to a child psychiatrist who assessed me and said, oh, he's a couple of years ahead of his age mentally. So I, they put me up a year. And then we moved to, from Somerset to Wiltshire, and Wiltshire said, oh, no, 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 can't be up there because it's only for people who are... <coughs> so So they put me down a year. So that was the worst thing possible because I'd already had a year catching up with all the kids a year older. Now I was put down a year, and I just oh, battle with education system ever since. The thing is that what they weren't picking up, if they'd seen my bedroom, they'd have seen you know, pictures of pop stars on the wall from girls' comics, they would have seen that I, I preferred girls' comics, but I, I was in a family of four children. So it wasn't clear. We, there was not that sort of strict gender lines. My dad was very you know, much a, you're a boy, you're a girl um, thing, but I was fairly flexible. I was a big fan of the famous five, so I always saw myself as I saw Julian as a role model. That I was the oldest, and uh, and he's a bit gay, uh, so. <laughs> um, Blight and played with it all a lot because she had a yeah uh, she had a non-binary child in the middle of all that who was called George. So so uh, yeah, I was drawn, I think, to the Enid Blyton books because of that diversity within a, a very sort of prim and proper English family. But at the same time, in the middle of it, you've got this yeah, unbelievable levels of diversity. Julian is, yeah, Dick, Dick's the definite, you know, boy's boy, and Annie's a little girly girl. But there's George and Julian who really yeah, are not fitting in. But anyway, that was uh, that was the way I saw it. But then I, I saw a kid at school get really, really, he, he, he was in a big family, family of about 11 kids, and he was in the middle, but most of his older siblings were sisters. So he always ended up with hand-me-down clothes, and of course they're always girls' clothes. And as far as possible, he wore boys' clothes, but um, he came to school wearing a pair of girls' underwear and got forgotten it was cross-country running, had to get changed. Somebody noticed it, and it was like a, 
a scene out of Lord of the Flies, all the kids jeering and laughing and and there's me on the side thinking, you know, what do I do? Do I help him? No way, because then they'll turn on me. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, my God, he's so lucky. Um, so there was that sort of dilemma, but I also knew that that was when I really got this has to be a secret. You know, people cannot know. And I think when you live in a world then, and bear in mind this was a time when homosexuality was strictly illegal, and because it was illegal, the government largely promoted homophobia, encouraged people to, you know, did denounce people who were homo, uh, homosexual to, uh, and horrible sorts of medical treatments like um, electroconvulsive therapy used to try and correct them. I mean, we're arguing now about whether conversion therapy should be allowed, but then um, they were encouraging, encouraging it. And, uh, so I, I just I just knew you know I'm different. Um, I have this thing about liking girls' clothes and wishing I was a girl, and um, and yet I knew I couldn't tell my mum, my dad, my teachers. But there was no one, and I think it's difficult for anybody to understand if you have a secret um, that you cannot tell anyone, you cannot share it with any person at all because you have no idea what they'll do, what they'll do with that secret. Um, the moment you release that kind of secret to someone, you've now lost control. Uh, and when I finally did come out, I had actually told, I, I've been in three relationships before I came out, um, married with three kids, then another relationship with one child, and then a, a relationship with where there was a threat of me being outed. It was actually why I came out. Um, so I thought, right, I've got to come out. So I came out and I told my kids and they said, oh, yeah, we knew. And I said, hey, how, how come? Oh, mum told us. And I thought, ah, right. And everywhere I went, it was fairly clear that the people, the three people I had told, had told other people, had taken, had, and this is the thing about secrets. Once you, once you give someone the secret with it, no matter how much you implore them to keep it a secret, you have given them the right to share it if they choose to. Um, and, you know, I was glad I came out and managed it and controlled it. Um, I was heavily involved in the insurance industry. I was a senior manager. But by that time, I was a um, sales and marketing, European sales and marketing manager for a large American software house. Um, and, uh, oh, no, no, just gone past that. I was running my own um, public relations consultancy doing software um, consultancy for tech companies across the UK in the financial services arena. So I wrote for all the financial services press. Uh, I spoke all around the world on tech issues and was really developing my speaking. I just set up the Professional Speaking Association. Um, and suddenly I was being threatened, you know, um, someone, I don't know whether she would have acted me, but the threat was enough for me to go, oh, Suddenly, my greatest fear was there. You know, somebody saying, I know about your secret and I'm going to tell everyone. If the threat had not been there, would you have actually shared it? <sighs> it's, it's a difficult, it was a very difficult time. Um, I had not been very good with tax returns. Um, in fact, I hadn't done any for a while. So it all caught up with me, and suddenly I owed quite a lot of money that I didn't have. So 
I had to sell my house. It broke up. My, my relationship was already on the rocks anyway. So uh, that was uh, finishing. Um, and I didn't know where I was going. The company I'd been doing lots of work for had been taken over and was closing down their conference program. So I found myself suddenly at that crossroads in life where I, I just didn't know which way to go. Didn't know where I was going to go with it, what I was going to speak. Whether would I carry on speaking about this because it was a very niche market? Um, did I expand that into a broader tech and sales market, or did I? Uh, and suddenly faced with this, you know, someone's going to out me. I'm living on my own, so there was no longer the pressure of other people to stop me from cross-dressing, and that it, it became an overwhelming sense that this needed to be dealt with. Yeah, I mean, most people get to that point in life and they're at a crossroads in life anyway, but you have an extra level of, of yeah. conversations to have with yourself and with other people. What is it that you feel, was it the, the lack of control or was it the fear or, or the, fa the fact that you had the secret and you wanted to keep it a secret or what was it that you that struggled with? No, I didn't want it to be a secret. Um, I don't think any trans person wants it to be a secret. What they want and what we all want is to simply be able to be ourselves, just to go out and think, this is it, this is my, this is who I am. Um, there, there's a, a wonderful book, it's only a small book back from the 60s by John Powell called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Uh, and in the book, Powell says, I'm afraid to tell you who I am because if I tell you who I am and you don't like who I am, that's all I have. And uh, once I'd done it, I, I understood that book more after I'd come out. I came, I came out in 2002 and um, I, I decided, I thought what happened was I thought, right, I'm going to live from, I'd never actually lived as a woman for any period of time, you know, weekends that had been the best. And I thought, right, I'm going to do this. Um, so my uh, I, the company I'd been doing lots and lots of work for um, had their last Christmas too. It always been a fancy dress party and always been a bit outrageous, but never gone as far as you know cross-dressing. But this time I decided right, and and they said, well, we're not going to do the fancy dress thing anymore. It's going to be black tile. Um, I thought, all right, I'm going to do it anyway. So I turned up in you know black and silver sequin gown, yes strappy top and big wig and oodles of makeup. I'd had a lot of, I'd been getting lots of training and coaching. So I was getting closer and closer to, to knowing this was going to happen. This was the end of um, 2001. Um, I'd also just finished my year as master of a Freemason's Lodge show. I was now the, the past master. So things were, were freeing up that I was actually able to make decisions. Although I was just about to become the, um, global pre the president of the global speaking federation um and i was sitting on the edge of it and not knowing what to do do, do i just carry on with this the way it's going um and i just events took over i i decided to come out at this christmas party i then had a, a an insurance uh, industry thing to do in the early 2002 i turned up there as as richard and did my presentation um and there was a dinner in the evening i thought I'm going to go in the evening dress. So I turned up in the evening dress, and that really became the talk of town. And, and that was me outing myself but controlling it because I decided that I'm not going to let somebody else out me. 
I'm too well known. Um, founder of the Present uh, Professional Speaking Association. I had four columns in the financial press. Um, I was just literally, there, there was no way to do it quietly. So I've decided, I realized that if you've got something big and you're well known, then the only way to do it is actually as loudly and brashly as you possibly can. Make a big thing of it, make it an event. And everybody was, oh my God, wow. Um, and you know, some people may not like it, but they can't snitch about you. You can't get other people control the story. I controlled the story. I provided the pictures. I actually gave the interviews. So it, it ended up in a few of the press, but on page seven, not on page one. <laughs> so the importance of, of telling your story your way and going back to John Powell's words of that's all I have. How did how how was the response? That most people were okay. I noticed later that some people had no were no longer speaking to me, and that was fine. Some of my family didn't didn't really like it, didn't really want it, uh, and it was all part of their fear now. Because it's like, well, yeah, how do I explain to people this? Oh God, I don't want that. That you know, you you've imposed that upon me. Is the sense I got some of? How could you do this to your children? How could you do this to your family? Well, you know, I, I told the family, look, I'm coming out. This is this is what's going to happen. Um, if you don't like it, just, you know, step away. Um, because, yeah, I have to deal with this. Um, and some of them were around for a while and thought, nah. I think they got some bad feedback. Some people may have been, you know, thought it was very funny. And there were some derogatory comments. Uh, it's quite difficult when you're male to suddenly make yourself look, um, you know, att attractive as female. Um and whatever happens, people go, oh, you can see your Adam's apple. Oh, you've got a deep voice. Oh, you got so there's always going to be something that people will criticize. But in some ways, that's the nature of being female. Because everybody looks at women and says, You don't measure up to my expectations of what it means to be a beautiful woman. And that's what you're supposed to be. This is the this is the role, this is the bar you've got to reach. You don't reach it. Um, and I think I found a lot of what was going on after I transitioned was not about me being trans. It was actually about me being female. Um, I had no idea the level of sexism that women had to face um, until I transitioned and suddenly was experiencing it firsthand um, and thought, oh, this is absolutely crazy. And I had the second fear there. If they thought I was female and made a pass at me, then discovered that I was male-bodied, I was in severe risk of actually being beaten up. But then, you know, for women, the risk was being raped. Um, it, whatever happened, it would be a, viol a violent outcome if I didn't, you know, protect myself. So uh, yeah, I, I learned an awful lot. Nobody would book me, though. My speaking business just stopped dead. You know. End of... Uh, I had one person doing uh, got me doing a little bit of PR work for them. A uh, couple of odd speaking engagements here and there, but overall it just went absolutely dead. And I was, I'd, I'd moved up to Hull, um, stayed with some friends um, while I figured out wh where I was, where I was going to do, what I was going to do. And uh, I discovered that there was a gender course, a really good gender course at Hull University. So um, I, I didn't have a first degree, but I did have insurance qualifications and marketing and various other I had plenty of qualifications which easily matched having a first degree so I um 
I actually went to talk to them about doing a yeah, PhD, and they said, well, "We'll start with a ma- 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 go for masters first. And the, and I was put on a course. They offered me a course, which was basically it was a it was a masters an MSc in gender research, but it included all of the research stuff that you would need to do a PhD. So the idea was start with a master's degree, then move on to the PhD. I did the master's. Uh, took me a little bit longer than I expected. Um, I really didn't like academic. I didn't like that academic language. And I realized that what was happening is it was impacting the way in which I spoke. Suddenly I was using words that the audience couldn't understand because I was being educated into using them. And I, this is a big problem, I think, with academia, that it it, it ties itself up into this horrible um, academic language. And if I wrote a paper that was very uh, from the heart and very, you know, about you know personal conversations and personal observations, I will be constantly being challenged. Oh, this hasn't got, yeah, this hasn't got academic rigor. You haven't looked. I thought, oh, God's sake. Um, so I thought, no, I'm not going to go past the masters. Uh, and everything that happened, the world was suddenly becoming diversity focused. The Equality Act, the first first stage had just come out. The laws related to trans people were all being changed. Um, everybody suddenly wanted trans people on their committees and on their uh, organisations. So I found myself suddenly in huge demand. Nobody was paying it. Um, I was actually I had to go on benefits for a while because literally I'd exhausted all my resources over about three years. Um, and... Uh, <coughs> But suddenly I was getting into some quite interesting places. I was on, you know, community cohesion committees. I was uh, on various different committees all over Yorkshire. I was working with the Government Equalities Office, the the, um, Equality and Human Rights Commission. All these people were basically finding me because I had a a management background and experience in senior manager and now brought in the trans aspects. That was making people say, oh, right. Uh, here's somebody who really does understand because a lot of trans people have just literally been chucked out. That's it. They, they sort of ended up, yeah, unemployed. The unemployment level amongst trans people is horrific. Yeah. And you talk about community cohesion, and it goes back to when you said that there's such a divisive nature in the, the polarization of you have to fit into one camp or another, you have to be male or female. What is it that necessity to, to have to belong in, in one or the other? This is all part of social identity um, politics. If you look at social identity theory, it's it's all about the fact that we we find our identity from our membership of groups. Um, And that might be our group as British, as English, um, as as Londoners, as as Geordies, as Liver, you know, so and it's also connected to your school. What type of schooling? Were you public school? Were you private school? Were you are you working class? Are you middle class? Are you and all of these things that we think about um, become identity labels. I'm disabled. I'm not disabled. I'm able-bodied. I'm tra- I'm LGBT. And and once we get into those groups, we then start to acquire all the the badges we get the right you know if you're a football fan you you've got the right you've got all the uh, all the kit uh, that matches your football team you wear red or blue or black or uh, 
black and you know, yellow and black, I think it is in hell because it's a tiger's. <laughs> so, uh, and then you've got songs which are related to each football thing, and you've got logos, you've got symbols, and and a whole and, and we see this in in all sorts of walks of life. The whole Nazi thing was very, very much predicated on beliefs about you know um racism and beliefs about you know the Aryan race, symbols of swastikas. Uh, and we've seen exactly the same sort of thing emerging after the Brexit vote with the far right suddenly starting to acquire, you know, even the term Brexit suddenly became a badge of honour. Then you've got Remainers and then the Brexiteers call the, the, you know, the Remainers Ramonas. And, uh, and, and you know, what you try to do is you big up your club and you put down... The them so we've got them and us and us is the one that we want to get our prestige from so we big them up we're, we're all fun, and the other side is the the yeah the them, we put them down um, dehumanize if possible the the Nazis dehumanize the Jews calling them rats the uh, um the uh, well Rwanda I think it was the Tutsi got called cockroaches, and um, by dehumanizing it's okay to kill. Um, and the same thing in some ways has happened around trans people in some cultures. Trans people have been dehumanized to the point that it's actually okay to kill them. It's okay, yeah, it's okay to kill gays. It's okay because, because they're not human, they're subhuman, there's something less than normal. And that's part of that whole prejudice and discrimination process that goes on. We you know, push away the people who are not us, not like us, not normal. And of course, what we've got, we've got a term now, which uh, for anyone who is not transgender, there's a term cisgender, and cis means eat the same. The term has been around for a long time in various different contexts, but it's only really come into apply to, you know, to human beings. Probably about ten years ago, it started being used in academia, and it was used to differentiate someone who is not trans, because if somebody is trans, and you say, well, what is somebody not trans? Well, they're normal. If you say someone is normal, then immediately that means the other one must be abnormal, which creates that. So no, no, we have to have an A. Exactly the same happened with homosexuality was defined. This is what homosexuals are. What are people who are not homosexual? Well, they're normal. No, no, they're heterosexual. So you have to keep a balance between the, them and us, because if you don't, what will happen is you will basically put one above the other by the way in which they're labeled we have a horrible problem with labels <laughs> just yeah and it's it's funny because you talk about labels and we talk about when when you introduce yourself people use tend to use their job role as their label to define what they who they are as opposed to what they do and and then you know we're talking about here we're talking about why you do what you do but I I don't introduce people at the beginning of these shows because I don't want to give labels I don't give I, and I purposely do that and it's an opportunity for each guest to share what it is they're doing and why they're doing it but not having to be defined by what they're doing yeah and and this this is a problem of being transgender. There tends to be to be defined by you know I'm a trans woman, so that that suddenly makes me positions me in, in a certain way, and I'm increasingly trying to move away from that. I'm now uh, I did transition right across. I identified as female completely and did everything possible. I started down the track of having surgery, um, began to see some major major problems 
around surgery. One is the huge length of time. Um, there was an awful lot of sexist pressure from within the gender identity clinic to conform to a female stereotype. Um, you've come to this meeting today, but I'm not sure you're serious. What, why is that? Well, you're not wearing a dress. Seriously? Um, what have you done about your voice? You're still talking about, um, I'm sorry. Um, so you know, you, what, why aren't you trying to you know, act out the role of being female? But well, you know, because I didn't want to act out a role. Um, this is my natural voice. I'm a speaker. That's what I do. Uh, I, I, I did actually slightly raise the pitch of my voice, but I, I realized that this was going to be silly. I find it up with a squeaky little voice. And uh, so I, I felt that pressure. And then I realized some of the surgeons weren't that good. I have a friend who died a couple of weeks ago uh, from surgery 20 years ago that just never got right. Uh, and they were sending me to the same doctor from surgery. And I said, no. I know she'd been ill all pretty much since after you know from the time she had surgery. And I saw so many people having so many problems. Uh, and I wondered why, what 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 on earth was the reason for that? Because um it it wasn't like an obsession to be able to have sex as a woman. There was nothing like that. I, I wasn't I didn't have a overwhelming dis, dislike of my body. Um the term is gender dysphoria, which is that sense of dislike with the body you have. Uh, and mine wasn't that bad. I, I just felt more comfortable as a woman, and I still do. Um, I've never felt the need to cross-dress since, never felt the need to, to go back to identify as male, um, never felt a desire to. So, you know, once I, once I was identifying as female, I knew that felt comfortable. That was who I was. And I have a lot of female friends now, and the barrier of me being male is gone. So I can have that friendship with women that's just a friendship that women have with each other. And I think that's something that men don't, or certainly wasn't something I ever felt with other men, because for some reason I felt uncomfortable um, with them. It's so interesting. And, and you you started the whole conversation today talking about the history lecture that you're going to do and talk about the statues that you see of Aphrodite and, her, and Hermaphrodite and, and the fact that they had both sets of genitals and, and, and well, not both sets of genitals, but they you had the breasts and you also had the penis. It's interesting that obviously there wasn't going to be surgery in those days. No, they didn't. They didn't have that as an opportunity. We, we the next my next slide in the in the talk is about is about eunuchs which we see in the Bible. If you talk about the Hidra in India, the Hidra do have surgery, have always had surgery, and the, hidra, the, the eunuchs we knew were castrated males. But in fact, when you look at the Hidra, you start to realize it isn't about castration. It's the full, total removal of genitals. The penis and the testicles, a whole lot's removed in a, uh, yeah, well, let's put it this way, the, the mortality rate within, amongst the Hidra uh, was at around about 50% with that surgery. It's, uh, yeah, so it's a pretty scary, risky um, piece of surgery. We, we're okay with mortality rates in surgery now, but yeah, there's just ongoing problems. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what is it that you're trying to educate? Why, what, and why? And, you know, let's, let's talk about the why at some point. It, it's a case yeah. of what is it, what's important to you now for the work you do? The important thing now is about people being accepted for who they are. Um, just because I present myself in a way that doesn't conform to someone's 
stereotypical ideas of what it means to be male or female shouldn't make a difference. Um, and, and the battle isn't just about you know, trans issues anymore. The battle is, is all about, about men doing jobs which are seen to be feminine or women doing jobs which are seen to be masculine or women and men presenting themselves in any way that doesn't conform because we've we've got this rule that masculinity is anything that isn't feminine. So the moment a man puts on a you know a flowery shirt, people go, oh, that's very gay. And there's an assumption immediately, oh my God, he must be gay. A woman has a haircut short, oh God, you've gone across, uh, you know. And you think, well, why is there an assumption about sexuality just because somebody doesn't conform? And that's that's the area where I'm much more interested. I, I would like us to be in a world. I, I set my mission out that said, um, my mission is to help create a fairer world uh, in which every person's gender is accepted and respected. Um, I'm probably changing it a little bit now, in, in, in a world in which everyone has a voice. Um, I want people to be heard. I want people to be able to have their voice and do what they're good at. So, so I think increasingly it's now gone beyond that. I, I heard a story once of somebody who had gone to work for a very wealthy um, multimillionaire in a company, and he, he arrived at the job. Um, he'd been he'd somehow come across this guy in a in some meetings, and he, the, the, the and I've forgotten the name of the man. I said, "I'd love you to come and work for me, why don't you?" And said, offered him a, a deal which was just too good to refuse. He said, "Right." So, turned up for job, and he said, "Right, I'm here. Um, what do I? Do? What am I? Do you want me to do?" So I don't know. I have a very large organization. I'd like you to just meander around, poke your nose in here and there, find something to do and get on with it. And that was it. And he just went on with his job and he found something he really wanted to do. He was a scientist, got involved in some project to do with um, heat exchangers and was developing some work around there. And it got really exciting and it got together in a meeting one stage. And one of the company, uh, or one of the groups said, we've hit a brick wall. Uh, we've got this problem. And he described the problem. And he said, I sat there thinking, I have his solution. And he said, excuse me, we've just developed exactly what you're looking for. They got together and they'd solved the problem and created a multi-million pound product. Not because they were planning it, because he was doing. And I listened to that. I thought, oh, my God, why isn't our world running like this? Why don't we just put people into what they really want to do, allow them to be who they really are? So many people end up being doctors and lawyers and such like that because their parents think that's the right thing to do. And maybe they would have been better as a musician. Maybe they would have been better as a scientist. Maybe, you know, who, who knows? But it, it's that's the, to me, that's the driver underneath it. I want to do what I'm best at. Um, now, sometimes what I'm best at and what I really want to do doesn't pay. And that creates that horrible battle. Oh, this is what I really want to do. And I want to do it, you know, a university approaching me. Could you do a talk you know, for our thing? Yeah, do you got a budget? <gasps> no. <sighs> right, okay. Yeah, I'll do it. Um, because, yeah, I know they, the, the task needs to be done. Um, and money has no, I, I found now increasingly in my eyes, money isn't the driver. But, of course, it's the problem if you haven't got any. <laughs>
So it's trying to find that place where, where everybody can actually start to be who they are best at, do what they're best at, without worrying about, you know, whether it's going to pay. We, we have a, such an unfair world, don't we? Yeah, what is it you're best at, Ricky? Uh, I'm a speaker. Um, I, and I can inspire and motivate people. I can tell really good stories. I can help people to become really great speakers. Um, and I have done, I've done that through the work I've done with Toastmaster clubs and the, you know, the PSA and such like, and a lot of people are now successful speakers because of work that I've done. So I know that that works. I'm also very good at getting people to, you know, understand and share and just and accept other people. So I have a good, I, I seem to have quite a good skill in encouraging people to accept other people for who they really are. Don't always get it right myself. There are some, uh, there are some things that people have, you know, I've, I struggle with people who've got uh, extreme disabilities. Um, and then I'm thrust into meeting someone like W. Mitchell. Um, and you suddenly are, oh, and, and he taught me so, so much um, about taking responsibility for the fact that other people find it difficult to communicate with you. So yeah, I, I work on the basis, if, if people are struggling because they don't know what to say because I'm transgender, well, it's no good me thinking, well, you should learn. You should think, uh, I've got to deal with that. Help them to be more comfortable. Help them to have their, if, if somebody meets me and that's their first experience of dealing with someone who's transgender and they go away feeling, oh my God, I'm so surprised. That was a really good meeting. That was a good conversation. I really liked her that I have probably benefited all trans people because that one person is now going to be, you know, more able to communicate and, and work with trans people. And are you finding that the as the generations are coming through that they are better at understanding and communicating or is it still an issue? So I did a talk at a, I won't name the school, um, I did a talk at a, one of the top public schools, boys' schools. And I used AHA slides, which you're, I know you're familiar with, and I decided I would allow the boys to ask questions at any time through the presentation, and then we'd deal with them at points through the presentation. I'd have a quick look and see what was going on. Um, I realised fairly early on, the sort of second time I looked at the questions, uh, I realised this wasn't going according to plan entirely. Um, but when you're in the middle of a presentation, it's very difficult to then start making changes to what you've done. Because I realised the questions coming through were, mm, to call them homophobic is probably an understatement. They were brutal. Um, and the problem was, of course, on our slides, you can ask questions anonymously. Um, you can put your name in if you want, but you don't have to use your own name. You can actually ask a question in somebody else's name. Uh, and therefore, you could use somebody else's name and ask a really embarrassing question on their behalf that makes them feel really, and that's what was going on. And then, of course, you can vote up the questions to decide which ones you want. And all the, the worst questions were being voted up by about 50 boys. And at the same time, in amongst the 50, there were some you know, really legitimate LGBT students saying, you see, this is what we said was going on. It's happening all the time. Now you can see it. And I thought, yeah, you can. So uh, at the end of it, I've suddenly realized, I mean, these, these were the 
These are the sons of our leaders around the world. These are all people who will automatically get a pass straight into senior management once they've finished university. Um, and the attitudes and undercurrent of beliefs that they have are appalling. Um, I'm not entirely sure I would have had questions that bad if I'd been dealing with a you know a, a school in a low degradation area with you know kids from working class backgrounds. I think they would actually have been more civil. Some of it was just boys being boys and just you know being cranky, but they were. And we were talking about A-level students. These are these are kids in sixth form. Uh, it wasn't what I expected. Uh, I think the school has been a bit shocked. They're trying to deal with it, but it, it made me think. You know, I, I, I I didn't see it as a negative thing that had happened. I actually saw it as a positive thing because it had shown me that the attitudes, and I've spoken to other groups and looked at other things since, and the attitudes I faced in the 1950s and 60s, which I thought were quite bad in a world where, you know, there was no trans, we didn't even, the term transgender hadn't been invented and gay was, those kind of negative attitudes that were happening then are still there. They're submerged now, that's the problem. All that's happened with our layers of uh, equality law is that we suppressed the expression of those views. Uh, we haven't allowed, uh, and we're not dealing with it. Now there's a, an experiment done in uh, Kenya. They had a problem with abuse of girls um, and the level of girls being raped and sexually abused uh, reached a point where it was out of control. So they decided that they would actually put the girls on an intensive course program, teaching them how to tackle and deal with uh, these problems. Two years down the line, absolutely nothing had happened to the statistics. Girls were still being raped and sexually abused at exactly the same rate. So they turned it around and they said, okay, fine, let's not deal with the girls, let's tackle the boys, because they're the perpetrators. And most of this was date rapes. Um, you know, girls going on relation on a date with a boy, it got gets out of control and she can't stop it. Um, so rather than teaching the girls self-defense and things on how to stop it, because that wasn't working, they then started to teach the boys to respect women, to respect girls, and to understand no means no. Uh, within two years, there was a more than 50% drop in sexual abuse and rape. And it shows you, you, you have to tackle the perpetrators head on. You can't, it's no good sort of trying to teach people to defend. It's, it's like the attacks on Twitter and such. Like I get that all the time. I get it on my uh, YouTube channel, people making horrible comments. Um, it's no good me going in and trying to fight these people because all that will happen, they will hashtag the comments. And before I know where I am, I've got 20 or 30 trolls having to go at me because this, this, these groups where, where it's a single issue uh, target um, group, you know, they're specifically focused on tackling trans people. They're particularly anything to do with, let's say, children transitioning, and that's it. They're on that topic. You get into an argument with them and boom, all of their tribe comes in to fight that argument. If I say nothing, it goes away. Twitter is like that. You know, if, if you don't if you don't actually engage, the tweet is gone, never to be seen again. Engage, that's it. It's all over the place. Then it'll go viral.
But as you say, you're you're not actually dealing with a situation. It's just being suppressed and it's just there for another day with another person. And it's interesting you talking about these children because it's learnt what they've learnt, you know. And you say that if you'd gone to a different school, you would have experienced a different thing. Yes, because they've learnt different ways of responding and being treating people. And it's it for me. I mean, it's so important. I'm a parent, and it's so important to me for children to understand who they are and who they're living with and how to respect one another. And as you say, everybody gets a voice. Everyone should be heard in, in a, with an equal right. And your talk, you said you're going through to the 1970s. Is there a particular reason why you stopped at that point? Yeah, I've stopped because somebody else is picking up modern history. Um, and it, um, I've only got 30 minutes. So there was a natural point when April Ashley got her, her marriage annulled. Uh, and it, it was the point at which we decriminalised homosexuality, but the rate of arrests and convictions tripled. The court case over April Ashley's divorce meant that all of a sudden there was now a law that said you cannot change gender. Uh, up until that, people had actually managed to change. People had managed to change gender and everything had been okay. But all of a sudden, there was a law, that, and it was 35 years before we got that changed. And that was largely a family deciding that they didn't want to give up. You know, they didn't want April actually to take any of their money. So it was all about money. But, uh, you know, as it happened, the same judge I I've just discovered, literally, the judge who um, gave the judgment in the case of April Ashley is the same one who put Lord Montague in prison for being gay um, in 1954. So, uh, yeah, it, it was the wrong judge. It was the kind of judge who was always going to basically look at this and think, no, no, this is against our moral code. And, yeah, this is always a problem. Yeah, judges are not fair. Judges are not impartial. They all have biases. And that's how we have to tackle it. But I'm I'm very I'm sort of balancing at the moment in terms of where I get. I'm I'm doing quite a lot of trans work. I think people are beginning to start looking at it a bit more effectively. Private companies have really not tackled the issues at all, um, and I still hear back from lots of people this undercurrent of, um, oh, it's very funny. Oh God, isn't it weird? Oh yeah, and. As a trans person, I can always tell, I think anybody can, if if somebody doesn't like you or finds you uncomfortable, it's very difficult for them to hide that. Their eye contact, the way they speak, the way they respond, how quickly they deal with you, um, all tells you uh, very much, and I'm sure you've had it, haven't you, that you go somewhere and you think it's people, these people don't like me, and you can feel it and sense it. And there's nothing you can put your finger on. You can't say, oh, it was because of that. There's just a, a an accumulation of gestures and, and vocal um, gestures that, that makes you go, mm. that was uncomfortable, didn't like that. And I get the same thing. I know when people don't like me, I know when they're having some problem with it. Sometimes my partner gets it because she's, you know, they see it happening behind me. And um, that's, that's where it is. So what's the plan for you now, Ricky? How are you going to move forward? What's uh, You mentioned your mission, but what is it that you would like to achieve? Right, I've been promising to write a book on this for a long time, so I've now started the book. Um, chapter one is almost complete. Every time, everything I'm doing now, I'm thinking in terms of you know, how does this fit within the book? What's, what, what am I going to cover? I'm not absolutely sure 
how far I'm going to go within the book um, because yeah, it's such a huge topic. That's the problem. Uh, I do a, yeah, I do 30 minute talks or one hour talks, but I've also done a master's degree and I have a, you know, I already have all my content. I might grab some stuff out of my master's uh, dissertation uh, and pop that in. Although I think I'm going to have to uh, improve the language, make it more accessible. Well, you were talking about the language earlier, weren't you? About you know making it so that it's understood. But if you're if you're going to be covering these different topics and using the right language for people to take it on board, it's it's a case of who is it you're writing it for? Is it for people who are trans who need need that help, or is it for people to accept trans? It, it, in the world? it would probably help people who are trans, but they're not my target. Uh, there's lots of stuff being written which is there to help trans people deal with it. Now, I, the people who knew need, where we need to educate uh, are people in work, people people who are you know managing you know, departments, people who are managing people. Um, you know, when trans people come into your shop, go into your hotel, whatever, uh, these people, I'm hoping that they they can read it and think, oh right, I've got a better. So it needs to be something that's pretty easy um, to read. I don't. You know, kid myself, and it's going to be the kind of book that you know everybody's going to have on their bookshelf. It's, uh, but I, I need to make sure that the people who can influence uh, actually, people who are interested in diversity, will say, "Yeah, this is uh, this is a good book." And I've I've got to keep it as yeah, as plain and simple as I can, and and as entertaining. So it's got to be about stories. Well, I, I know you write really well, and I know you, you you're a big fan of poetry as well. So I can see oh, yeah. some funny poems coming into this book. Uh, and again, you know, you are controlling the story, but you're also helping other people to control their reactions, to understand how to react and how to have conversations with people. Yeah. Because often it's that they don't know. That it comes back to that fear that they, they live in fear, and they don't know what's right to say, what they can say, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. So, laying it all out and being very clear, and and as you do, you 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 write beautifully, you speak beautifully about being very transparent in what you do. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's what I'm trying to do with the book. I'm I'm pretty much following. Uh, I've I've done quite a few videos. I'm taking. I've got. Um, Use, getting using otter to transcribe um lots of that stuff so i'm just gonna pop that and say can i can i can i use that yeah and and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't work sometimes it's just gone off on too much of a tangent <laughs> so for, for, for people who uh can't wait for the book how could they reach out and speak to you about any issues that they have now or would like to book you for a talk where would they get in contact Right, the, be the best place for anything to do with the transgender issues is on uh, the gender speaker or just genderspeaker.com. Um, there's lots of information about trans issues there. There's a little bit of history stuff uh, and a booking form. And most of my bookings come in um, uh, through there. I've got a TEDx talk, which they might find interesting. It's a 20 minute talk, really encapsulating a lot of, uh, of what I tend to talk about. I expand it or, yeah, my talks for individual organizations. I always uh, bespoke. I always, you know, talk to the client, find out exactly what it is they're trying to achieve, and make sure that the talk, you know, focuses around that. My speaking uh, work. Um, I'm in the middle of upgrading my uh, uh, other talk, RickyArundel.com. There is a little bit of information at the moment, a few bits and pieces, but as a, that's about to get a bit of a, a major overhaul. Um, so that hopefully will be 
uh, within the next month or two, the, the new new homepage and some uh, new material there. But I'm all over social media. I have the unique, because I got to change my name and choose my own name. I didn't know it was going to happen. But um, it turns out that I'm the only Ricky Arundel in the world. There's not a single person anywhere else in the world who has the name Ricky Arundel. So if you just type in Ricky, R-I-K-K-I, remember to get that, Arundel, you will find um, that I'm all over the internet. I'm about the first 100 pages of uh, of Google. It's not like number one. It's just pages and pages and pages of me with articles. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm you know, quite active on LinkedIn. I'm active on Facebook. Uh, I have an Instagram account. That's about as much as I could say about it. Well, I, I would say I'll put all the details in the show notes. And of course I will, but quite easily. It's just easy for people just to Google you. So that's that's brilliant. I just want to say thank you so much, Ricky. It's been an incredible history session and a really important sharing of the situation that you are sharing with gender, with the, the situation of the polarization that's still going on, which is just horrendous to hear and I'm hoping that with the work you're doing and the work that I know other people are doing that it will be set to change going forward I just would love to say thank you again and please could you share some final words with us ah right some final words I I I think the thing that I've picked up more than anything else when I was doing some work with the Equality and Human Rights Commission I I picked up that there the basic theme of equality and diversity is treat everyone with dignity and respect. And I close a lot of my talks with, with a little bit around this, um, treat everyone with dignity and respect. And I ask, yeah, how, how do you feel about that? And people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm with that. And I, say, and I mean everyone, rapists, murderers, pedophiles, terrorists. And all of a sudden, everybody starts to bring their hands in. Oh, well, not them. No, no everybody except the... But that's the whole thing about equality, diversity, and the human rights agenda. It means everyone. You can't choose who you treat with dignity and respect. doesn't mean you don't imprison people. doesn't mean you don't punish people for bad wrongdoing. But it does mean you do it by treating them with dignity and respect. And if we all got that idea, treat everyone with dignity and respect, we could get rid of 700 pages of equality legislation overnight and probably a lot of other laws as well. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.